Thanks so much for joining us for the New Life Coolangatta podcast. New Life Church is one family, many churches, and we exist to simply see more people more like Jesus by planning and leading thriving local churches. You've joined us for Dinner with Jesus, a series exploring transformative mealtime encounters found in the Gospels. Together, we will discover the depths of these moments, revealing Jesus' mission of redemption through love and grace. We pray this message is a blessing. Good morning, New Life Cooling Gala. How cool is it that we have people in this church family that are bold enough to step up and try something new for the first time? You did a great job. Eve, come on. Come on. Hey, I don't know if you know this, but as a church, we have a mission statement, which is that we would like to see more people more like Jesus by planting and leading local thriving churches. But we also have a vision that by 2025, we would be leading a movement of renewal in and through the Uniting Church in Australia. And today and over the next few days, um, there's a pretty cool thing happening up on the Sunshine Coast where a collection of our pastors have gone up there to join for Synod. Now, now Synod is the gathering of all of the Uniting Church pastors and leaders and reverends um, across the state of Queensland, and they gather and they make big decisions, uh, oftentimes big decisions about what it looks like to continue to be the Uniting Church uh, in Queensland. So it's a really big deal, and, and our pastors are up there right now hoping to be there as an image of what it is to be renewing the church. And so we, we're praying that they would be there to bless, to build up, but also to show that we are built and based on the word and way of Jesus and we won't bend. And so we're really excited to see what that looks like. I just want to invite this church to join us, make space in your busy schedules over the next few days to take time to actually pray for our church pastors and leaders who have gone up there and are representing them. Pray for, uh, pray for them to be wise. Pray for them to be a blessing. Pray for them to represent Jesus and to be a deeply loving and show the heart of new life towards uh, the Uniting Church. So we'd really, really appreciate it if you could be praying in that way. Uh, but why don't we get into it? If you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to open them up to Matthew. We're going to go to chapter 9. We're going to go to verse 9. And uh, whilst you turn there, I see all the people are whipping out their Bibles, you know. As we turn there, um, if you haven't met me before, my name is David Skembry. I get the absolute joy of being a pastor here at New Life Coolangatta. And uh, today we're starting a new four-week series called Dinners with Jesus. And I don't know if you've ever read the Gospels, but you probably noticed that some of Jesus' most memorable and meaningful moments were moments shared over a meal. You ever noticed that? You got the Last Supper. Um, there are other ones that I couldn't think of on the spot right there. So, <laughs> so we're going to take about a month or so to uncover four uh, of these encounters. And discover what time spent beside Jesus has the power to do. And um, just a pro tip for those who want to get like maximize what they can get out of a series like this: uh, each of our churches has the freedom and the flexibility to decide what they, which meal they feel God is calling them to preach from uh, each week. So if you want to get a larger collection of scriptures, you know, sermons based on a larger collection of meals, tune into the podcast for some of our other locations and see what they've spoken about. There, but let's jump in. Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. It says this As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. 
When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Would you join with me in prayer? Holy Spirit, come. We praise you. We we take a minute to acknowledge that you are in this room, that you are present. And that Holy Spirit, Father God, Jesus, your heart is not to just call righteous, perfect people, but it's to call us, sinful, ordinary people, back into relationship with you. And we just praise you for that, Jesus. Thank you that that is your heart. I pray that today is... As we spend time going through the word, God, that only the things that you wish and desire to be said would be remembered. And the things that aren't of you or aren't in line with what it is that you wish to speak through this scripture would be forgotten, God. Come and bless us today as we remember with great anticipation, God, that you are a God who is present and close and by the power of your spirit can do remarkable things even in this day. We love you, Jesus. We praise you. And we pray in your perfect name, the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 Hey, anyone here love icebreakers? You got any icebreaker lovers? Wow, no icebreaker lovers in the room. All, all the icebreaker lovers are really quiet, hence why you need icebreakers. That does make sense. I'm a big icebreaker fan. I'm a really awkward person when I start thinking about things. And, and, and so I love anything that helps me be a little less awkward. Um, And I remember a few years ago, I was hanging out with a bunch of friends, and we were playing this board game that wasn't really a board game. It just had a bunch of rules, and it was a box of icebreakers. And we just went around, and we just read these icebreakers. And and we laughed, and we answered, and we had great conversations. And one of them went like this. If you could have dinner with anyone who's alive today, who would it be and why? Why? And I just remember this question, it sparked such good conversations, and I thought, starting a series about having dinners with people, let's do an icebreaker, why not? So why don't you turn to your neighbor, take a few seconds, and answer this question, who would you have dinner with, uh, and why? Go ahead and do that now. Awesome. Awesome. I feel like that was a generous enough amount of time. Let's bring it back in slowly. Any, just, uh, did anyone say me? No one? Not even my wife? Gotcha. Hey, there you go, lad. Love it. Hey, seriously, we're going to play a bit of an interactive game. Who chose a leader of nations or companies or people? Who chose a leader of nations? Yep. Any hands? Cool, cool. Yep, come on. Who chose an activist? Someone who brings a voice to the marginalized or the needy. Any hands? Oh, yeah, come on. Good Good to see some hands. Who chose an author or a philosopher or a thought leader? Come on. Yes, a few people, a few people. Lastly, did anyone choose a celebrity? Oh, yeah, here we go. You know, no, no, I'm not going to judge you. No judgment at all. Um, 
I don't know if it's true for you, um, but I know for me, I, I'm drawn to the person who has a little of something I want to catch, right? Even the celebrities, something about their personality, their talents, whatever it is, there's something they have that I would like to catch a little bit of it. And there's something we all know, uh, and, and maybe it doesn't even make sense to us, but everyone kind of knows that when we catch up over a meal, and in that slow, relaxed, intimate, and unguarded space, we begin to catch a little bit of something, a little echo of the character, talent, passion of a person, right? We all know this. And my question is, if the person you said before is the person you would most likely, most like to grab a dinner with, and, and, and they're alive and kicking on the same earth that you're on, why haven't you organized a dinner with them yet? And I'm going to assume that the answer for 90% of us is that because they, it's because they haven't invited us, right? It's because we've never quite had the opportunity to meet Brad Pitt and say, let's grab dinner. No, that's actually not mine. Mine would be Matt Chandler. Um, he's a great preacher. I'm not going to brag. Anyway, um, and, and this is what I think that this scripture, this dinner that we just read points towards. Because I wonder if there's a collection of us in this room who needs to readdress the idea that we can't join a space with Jesus, that we can't uh, come to dinner with Jesus until we get a personal, big, bold, you know, moment-smashing kind of invite from him. We're waiting for the great Hollywood breakthrough before we'll make space in our lives to sit at the table he's prepared for us. See, before we can begin to talk about the things that Jesus did over dinner, we've got to ask a question. A simple question is this, do I believe, do we really believe that we would have been invited to the table with Jesus? Do we believe that Jesus would invite us to dinner with him? My hope for today is that we might get hungry, excuse the pun, to make space for Jesus in our lives by removing the things holding us back and getting us excited to witness his hand of mercy play out in and through our lives. So let's dig in. Verse 9, it says this. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, just pause. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, check this, Matthew throws a feast. The book of Luke describes it as a great big banquet, right? He, he throws a feast and he sends out an invite to his new pal, Jesus. And Jesus doesn't RSVP, no, I can't make it. I'm quite busy saving the world. He, he replies, yes, let me make space in my calendar. Let me make space, carve out time in my life to come to your feast. And he came. And it says, not only did Jesus come, but it goes on to say, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. Jesus made space. He made it a priority to meet people over that ancient tradition of eating together. Who in this room knows food is sacred? We got any food lovers in the room? Right, come on. I eat a delicious burger and I feel like my spirit is elevated. <laughs> I wish I was joking. Uh, anyway, I was listening to <laughs> I was listening to a sermon of uh, Matt Chandler's. Actually, you know, we were having a conversation over dinner. I wish, but I was listening to a sermon of his lately, and he describes the importance of dinner this way. He says this, dining in a first century context isn't the way we dine today. It's slow. It starts early. It goes late. And it is a sign of intimacy and friendship 
Which is why the religious of his day accused Jesus of eating with tax collectors and sinners, because dining with someone meant something. Friends, do you know today that dining with someone means something? Do you know that dining with someone means something? In fact, if we begin to trace dining, feasting together through the Old Testament, we find food plays a significant part in the relationship between God and his people. There's this incredible story in Exodus chapter 24 where where the elders and the leaders and the holy people of Israel go up to the top of the mountain and it says the visible presence of God. God was in front of them, like right there before their eyes. And what did they do with this God they could see and sit with? They ate and they drank with him. Or maybe we think of the many feasts that take place throughout a Jewish calendar, that they carve out time. I think of the Passover, for instance. They carve out time to remember and to celebrate God's hand of faithfulness and deliverance that is showing up over and over again in their lives. Dining was vital to what it meant to be in relationship with God. And so no wonder it became vital part of how they do relationship with one another. Eating together wasn't just grabbing a bite to satisfy those afternoon grumbles after a large, long day in the fields. Dining with someone meant something. Eating together was a statement of acceptance, of commonality, that we have something in common, of celebration and of friendship. So this is a big deal. Who Jesus feasts with is loaded. It's loaded. And I mean, imagine... The Gospels were happening in our day and our, our age. And Jesus was rolling around in his holy Corolla, God's car. And he was looking to eat with people today. And he, he was going around. I wonder, do you believe that he would venture into your neighborhood? He would rock up in the Palm Beach, Cool and Gatto, Tweed. Do you believe that he would turn up into your neighborhood, come into your workplace, knock on the door of your house, sit at your table? And any of you wonderful people in this room that spend any amount of time in Sunday school forward slash kids church, right? All of you, plus anyone who's ever lent in and chosen to listen to more than one or two sermons, would all know that the right answer is, yes, of course Jesus would come and sit at your table. He's Jesus. But then I I wonder, and I have a feeling that there are people in this room that know the right answer is yes. They would say yes on a quiz, but that yes is nothing more than a right answer. And I'd have to imagine the dissonance, the disconnect, the, 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 the damage it causes to our lives when we know the right answer is one thing, but our internal experience says something else when it comes to our walk with God. I, I went to Bible college, right? What do you think they do for four years at Bible college? They pump you full of the right answers so that I can hold a conversation with a really smart, godly pastor and sound like I know something of what I'm talking about, right? I am very well acquainted with the right answer. And then you go home, and you go into the, you recede you, you, you into the privacy of your own walk with God. And anybody who walks knowing one right answer and feeling something else, a dissonance in their souls, knows that what you feel in those spaces in your private relationship with God is a deep sense of shame a real deep sense that maybe God is disappointed with you, that you're letting him 
down, that you know the right answer is here, but your experience of life just feels like it's here, and you just can't seem to muster enough faith to climb the staircase to become the kind of person who says and believes the right answers, and you just feel like you're letting him down all the time. And so your walk with God, your prayer life, it becomes strained and difficult. You go before God, and you try to read the scriptures, but they seem to just make no sense, and the things you do understand seem wild and hard to believe, so it becomes not a priority. And the idea of sitting with Jesus in a very real and personal way becomes little more than a religious exercise. And the fact of the matter is, anyone here who's genuinely walked with Jesus for more than a couple of years knows what I'm talking about. This isn't just a me thing. We all learn the right answers to things and then struggle to truly believe them. This is the Christian walk. This is what it means to discover and uncover faith every day, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We wake up each day with the right answers on our tongue, but a deep disconnect from its reality in our hearts and our lives. And what the Bible does is it offers such a great job of finding pain points like these and really speaking into them. So we begin to understand why this story of Matthew hosting Jesus for dinner is so beautiful. Because in Matthew, we see the kind of person that Jesus delights to dine with. In Matthew, we see the kind of person that Jesus delights to dine with. I mean, just see this. Only a few moments before when Jesus invited Matthew to come close, what was Matthew doing? He wasn't, you know, recording a TikTok video of him giving food to the homeless or something. You know, he wasn't just sitting there bringing hope to hurting people. He was in the midst of his tax collecting. And maybe you go, well, what's the big deal about tax collecting? Well, tax collecting was a profession that throughout Scripture was consistently paired with the word sinners. Right? You imagine, you know, I don't know, what, it, it, doctors in the room, it goes, oh, yeah, doctors and sinners, they're all one group. You know, oh, legal professionals and sinners, one group. Right? Think about how that would feel. There's got to be a reason for that. And in fact, when we look at the scriptural, uh, uh, the tradition of tax collecting, It was a profession that simultaneously supported a government that oppressed the Jewish people whilst also being deeply riddled with corruption. And at its its core was a profession that a Jew would only get into because they want to live a Hellenistic, materialistic, affluent lifestyle. In other words, a Jew or anyone really, but particularly a Jew, would become a tax collector for one reason, because they like money and they want more of it. And Jesus says, hey, I want this guy to come close. I want this guy to follow me. Come. And and Matthew gets up and he goes. And the Bible doesn't stop at Matthew. It wants to really make its point. Maybe in the room you're like, yeah, but Matthew was, maybe, we don't know Matthew, maybe he was a really holy tax collector. You know, really unlikely. The Bible doesn't give a whole heap of weight for us to see that in there. But let's just say for a minute, Matthew was unique amongst tax collectors. You know, like, be the change you want to see in the world. He was trying to change it or something. I don't know. But, but let's say that. Well, let's keep reading the story. The Bible doesn't want there to be any doubt of what Jesus is saying. So it goes on to say that Matthew throws this party and his friends come. And who are his friends? Well, first, they're tax collectors. Let me tell you, many of those people would have been very corrupt. And second, they were sinners, people known publicly for their sinful lifestyles. Imagine you're Jesus. Switch on your your biblical spiritual imaginations for a minute. Imagine you're Jesus. And your new bud, Matt, invites you over for dinner. And so you come over, you knock on the door, he welcomes you in, you take a seat. And you're sitting there thinking, wow, is it just me and my disciples or are more people coming? You hear a knock at the door. 
A door opens. Matthew's first friend walks in, a tax collector. Someone who had just actually finished his day's work for the day, where he had, and Jesus knowing all things, would know. Perhaps he just cheated and lied, a, 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 an honest working farming family uh, out of extra money, and now that family has no idea how they're going to feed their kids for the week. She walks into the room, hanging out. Another knock on the door happens. Door opens, in comes a sex worker. A sex worker, you know, has just done her day's work. And she's seen this person walk backwards and forwards who struggles with their sexual purity but has always said no. And she finally broke him today and she pockets the money and she's telling her friends, hey, you know, uh, another notch, I, I broke him. How cool is that? And Jesus knows this. And then another knock on the door comes. Someone else comes in, someone who organizes pit fights. Another knock on the door, another person comes in, uh, a loan shark keeping people squished in poverty under immense interest rates. And another knock on the door, another person comes in, someone who, who, who traps people in gambling. Another person, a party animal, out every night stumbling, leaving a wake of destruction and broken hearts. You know, and so on and so forth. The crowd gets thicker. The sins in the room grow heavier. And these aren't hidden sins. The point of the story is that everybody knew these people failed to live up to God's law. And so Jesus, more aware than, more, more aware than any of the greed and the suffering caused by these people, and more aware of all the people still bruised in the wake of their lifestyles and sinfulness, Jesus is not in the room with a furrowed brow, feeling icky and dirty and just waiting for this moment to pass. And he's not in there lording over these people his moral superiority. That's not how the Bible describes or reveals Jesus acting. What's he doing? He's laughing with them. He's eating with them listening to them as they speak, enjoying their company of all of these people. He's not keeping them at arm's length, hoping to tolerate a hard moment and move on. No, friends. In fact, this wasn't just a one-off event. He gains a reputation because of the repetition in which he does these kinds of things. Because of the number of times in his life, he is seen by the people around him hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. He gains this reputation in Matthew eleven nineteen, and it describes him as a friend to exactly the kind of people at this party, tax collectors and sinners. He becomes the kind of person known for his friendship, his warmth, his association towards these people. He was a safe person, a friend even, that even the lowest, most outcasted, most disreputable person would somehow find themselves gravitating towards him and being okay. So the Bible goes to lengths to make it clear that everyone, no matter their status, their holiness, or their sinfulness, is welcome before Jesus to the table that Jesus prepares. And maybe you're sitting in the room and you still struggle. And you struggle to believe that this would be true for you today, in this world, in this country, in this day and age. Maybe you struggle to believe that Jesus would delight to dine, to do life, to laugh, to befriend you. In the book of Revelation, Jesus is speaking prophetically through a vision to the church, to Christians. And he, he, he just described them because of their lifestyle and their faithlessness. And he says, you know, he, he describes them as pitiable and wretched. He says they are spiritually blind and spiritually naked. Like these are not good descriptive terms for this church, right? You go, wow, what did they do wrong? And to these people, here's what he says in Revelation 3.20. Here I am. 
I stand at the door and knock. Friends, he knocks to the most pitiable and wretched sinner, to the least spiritually, the least godly. Jesus is standing at their door. And friends, Jesus is standing at your door and he is knocking. And then it goes on to say, if anyone, say anyone. Say it like you think he said it. Say it with some passion. Anyone, friends, come on. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. And I will eat with that person and they with me. There's no argument in Scripture. There's no anti-you clause in Scripture. There's nothing you could have done or are doing or could ever do to disqualify you from being welcomed and invited and wanted by Jesus. The Scriptures are clear. You are welcome as you are, where you are. No strings attached. No strings attached. I think you need to hear that. No strings attached. This is the gospel that Jesus delights to dine with you. And so it continues. Verse 10. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Okay, so let's rehash the story so far. This, this story of Matthew inviting Jesus over to his house for dinner, right? The story starts with Jesus, and he's surrounded by a group of people known for their sin. And then we just get introduced to a, a third group of people surrounding them who are known for their righteousness, the Pharisees. And these Pharisees are right there, peering through the windows. I read a couple of commentaries that said there's a good chance they were actually even in the room, hovering over the dinner table. How weird, right? They were so close, but refused to sit and join the feast. So close, smelling the food, seeing the joy, hearing the laughter, talking to the disciples, and yet something was restraining them from sitting and joining the feast. And for those who don't know, the Pharisees had a real rigid sense of how everything should work and be and look. They used the Old Testament, and they used uh, cultural commentaries and, and the teachings of other Pharisees to create this very detailed and in-depth worldview that went far beyond what the Bible could have ever taught. And it essentially boxed everyone and created this view of what a perfect people should look like. And anything that didn't fit into it, what did they do? They chopped them off and put them out the city. And so here they were in this room. And they see Jesus doing something that does not fit into their perspective of what holiness and righteousness should look like. And so what do they do? They begin asking questions. They begin trying to understand and as they come right to the table, these points of confusion restrain them from sitting down. They were so caught up in their skepticism, in their perfectionism, in their unmet expectations, that they couldn't quite bring themselves to rest and sit and join. Friends, I don't know if you know this today, but it is possible to be hovering over the table and not enjoying the feast. And here's what I want to say today. Is I believe that there are Christians in this room. This is not a message I wrote for non-Christians, though so welcome, and I hope it blesses you. This is, a, this is a message I wrote for the church because I believe it's possible to be a saved Christian, to be in the room, to be hovering over the table and yet something's holding us back from just enjoying the feast, from just enjoying the presence and the pleasure and the delight of Jesus. And here's the reality. I don't know if you've noticed this before, but the gospel can be sometimes really hard to get Anyone ever notice that sometimes you read the Bible and you just got no idea what's going on? And sometimes the gospel just goes over our heads and we struggle. But the reality is the gospel isn't hard to grasp because it's complicated. It's hard to grasp because it's counterintuitive. The gospel is hard to grasp because it runs against the grain of everything our intuition says that we should expect of the world 
and of our God. It runs in contrary to everything we're taught. And the good news that we're welcome to sit with a Jesus who likes us and loves us, this can be hard to grasp. So we go ahead and what do we do? We hang at the fringes of God's table, waiting to get it or waiting. We, we make this plan. If we can just get this to start making sense, then I'll take a seat. Then I'll join in with what Jesus is doing. But here's how it actually works. Because that never works. Because we never find our resolution revolving around the fringes of the table. Here's how it works. The Christian chooses to sit down. And they start to enjoy the goodness of God. They sit down and they start feasting. And some of their questions get answered. And many of their questions suddenly just don't seem quite as important anymore. I mean, you ever spoken? I remember when I first got saved, I was speaking to these Christians who had been Christians for like, you know, 20, 30, 40 years. And I, and I was struggling. I was wrestling with it. I was like, man, I don't know if I believe this. This seems ludicrous. And, and it does. Christianity is ludicrous, but that doesn't mean it's not true. But it does seem ludicrous at times. And, and I just came before these people and I said, here's my questions, blah. You know, and then they would be like, oh yeah, I never found an answer to that one. Oh, that's a good question. And I would just sit there and be like, are you crazy? You believe in Jesus and you don't even know the answer to some of these questions? And as I sat with them, they began to reveal to me that when you begin to taste the brilliance and the goodness and the wonder of God, some of these other things just don't seem quite as important anymore. When you sit at the table and enjoy the presence of God, not everything will make sense immediately, but somehow that becomes more and more okay. Somehow it just becomes okay because we're sitting with something bigger and more important. The struggle to find a place at God's table is not, and this side of Jesus never could be the question of an invitation. You are invited. It's not a plus one invitation. Friends, you are invited. You are wanted. And the Bible gives you absolutely no room to believe otherwise. The real question is, is will you take the seat he's holding for you? Will you sit down with God? Will you find your home in his presence? Even before you have an answer to that thing that's holding you back. Will you take that seat that Jesus has been holding for you? The scriptures continue. On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Hallelujah. So we've got Jesus. He's dining with tax collectors and sinners, and there's this group looking in, and they're quite fr- the Pharisees, and they're quite frustrated by this. Why? Well, let's imagine who could fit into the categories of tax collectors and sinners in our day and age. I mean, I would just start with criminals, obviously. Then I'll go to probably dirty politicians, uh, directors, producers, and so on of, of porn, uh, loan sharks. Like I said, keeping people in poverty. Uh, the people, uh, the people who are behind all those annoying scam emails and scam texts and voicemails and phone calls. Man, they'll be in that room. People who uh, change lanes on the highway without indicating. Hallelujah. Anyone else agree? The worst kinds of people. Okay, maybe not the last one. But it would be people we would describe as shady, as slimy, as corrupt. People we would sum up as everything wrong with society today. If we began to imagine the people that would fill that basket for us, whatever you discern to be the root of the corruption and the brokenness in our society, 
Just start filling the room with them. Start to feel it. I think we'd start to get annoyed, start to get annoyed as well. Because it's no wonder the Pharisees were frustrated. These are the people ripping people off. They're causing disharmony. They're causing woundedness. And Jesus had the audacity to call himself a teacher of the faith. And he's just sitting there laughing with them. Essentially legitimizing them. Instead of shunning them and canceling them. You know, some part of me empathizes with the Pharisees here. Like, what on earth? And this is the tension of the Bible. This is the tension of this story. The whole story pivots around this tension. This is what they would have felt back then. And this is the question they've asked for all of church history. And it's a question we're asking and answering today. How can Jesus continue to be Lord and Savior, perfect and good in all ways, and and legitimize and hang out with sinful and broken people? How can he be just and also be the friend of sinners? How does this tension make sense? And the Bible doesn't let, let us walk away from this story without a resolution. See, we're dealing with the God of the universe, and he doesn't see things according to the way we do. He doesn't uh, see things in our order of priorities. Before he sees the sinful occupation, the job, before he sees the corruption or the brokenness, what does Jesus see? He sees the daughter. He sees the son. He sees that person handcrafted by him in the image of God, created for love and to be loved. Jesus isn't consumed with categorizing. He isn't in the label-making business. Jesus sees the soul. He sees the person. And this is why we have to resist the urge to try and get it all before we just sit with him. Because Jesus is seeing things and doing things in ways we could never conceive of. Friends, Jesus loves and is just in ways we could never compare with. And we have the audacity to try and fit God into our moral perception and into our perspective of where the priorities of justice should be. And this is essentially what Jesus says in his reply to the Pharisees with a few extra words. They go, hey, why would you be hanging with these people? Why are you legitimizing their existence? Cast them out. They're terrible people. And to these people, who the Pharisees who know more about scriptures than anyone else alive in their day and age, he says, hey, I think you need to learn your scriptures a bit better. And just before saying that, he says, he likens himself to a doctor. Why a doctor? Probably a bunch of reasons. But you know what a doctor does really, really well? You know what a doctor actually has to do really well? A doctor knows where a person ends and their sickness begins. Do you know what I mean? I mean, imagine if they didn't know where the person ended and that person's sickness began, and you go in with like this lump on you or something like that, and you're like, hey, I have this lump on me. It's terrible. It looks so painful. And they look at you and go, mm-hmm, that lump looks so good on you. You rock that girl. You know, you'd be like, What? But they're like, oh, I don't want to offend you, so I'll compliment that, that painful, dangerous-looking thing. You imagine the craziness if doctors saw our sinfulness the way that some of us and the Pharisees included did. You go to the doctor with stomach pain, and they're like, cure it. You ain't got nothing to cure. That's how you're wired. That's who you are. And you go home and suffer some more. You go with a seasonal flu, and they look you up and down and say, you're dirty. No, you are the sickness. Maybe if you stop being a flu, it'll go away. What a blessing it is that our doctors know what we're meant to look like so they know where my sickness ends and I begin. What a blessing it is that we have good doctors in our society. Right? Amen? And this is what Jesus is saying. He sees the person. He knows how he made us. 
He knows what a human is meant to look like, and he's calling us home to health. He recognizes where the human ends and the sinfulness begins. He can look upon any human being and say, no, 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 that that may look deeply intertwined with who they are and the very fabric of their being, and yet still I look at that human being and I see more than their sin. I see who I made. I see my beloved child. I see someone crafted in my image. What good news it is for us. What good news it is for, and, and I'll even say, not even just for tax collectors and sinners. This is good news even for the Pharisees. You know what the scripture says about sin? It says that all of us have sinned. Every one of us has fallen short of the glory of God. It says that no one does good. No, not one. There's no healthy. There's just people who haven't worked out that they're sick yet and need to see a doctor. They need to sit with Jesus. And so a dinner with Jesus, it's not just being accepted as we are and that's that. By sitting with him, it's finding the remedy to our brokenness. It's being treated, healed, cured, made whole, restored and redeemed. Each of us made new again by being present in the presence of the healer of our beings. This is the joy of our gospel. When we're invited to dinner with Jesus, we're not just accepted as we are, patted on the head and left to revel in our brokenness with no hope of getting out. He invites us to this place. He sits down with us, loves us, laughs with us, cares for us, and he leads us to healing. That is good news. What a blessed it is that we're invited to take a seat at the table of the healer. And he ain't no, I don't know, do anyone here like navigating hospitals? I get lost every time I go to the Gold Coast University Hospital. I cannot find where I'm going. I get very confused. And this is the thing. Jesus is not a come navigate a crazy complicated hospital to find me kind of Jesus. He'll come to you. He'll come to your door. Revelation 3.20. Here I am. I stand at the door and I knock. And if anybody, if anybody hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and I will eat with that person and they with me. The promise of the gospel, the power of a dinner with Jesus is that he is there. He is present. He is good. He is making it better. And once we sit down and we feast with Jesus, we never regret it. The promise of the gospel is that somehow in the midst of our suffering, our pain, our worst days, he is present weeping with us. And in the joys and in the highs, he's right there laughing with us. And in it all, he is close. And somehow through it all, that is enough. The promise of the gospel isn't that God is a genie in the bottle who will answer every problem as it comes out, vending machine your life away. It's that somehow things will still suffer for a short while this side of eternity. But in the midst of that suffering, for two millennia, over and over again, Christians have found that Jesus is there. And there is a mystery to it, but it's true. Somehow that's enough. Somehow that's enough. So what does it look like today to sit at the table with Jesus? It's not like he's going to eat a meal if you serve it, right? What does it look like for us today to sit with Jesus? Remember at the beginning I said eating together means something. Eating together means something. Not because of the food, but because of what it signifies. It signifies acceptance, commonality, celebration, and friendship. And as we talk about the table over these next few weeks, I don't want you to get caught thinking about it in the paradigm of food. In that book in Revelation that we just read, in the verse we just read, it was written to a post-resurrection, but also a people we hadn't yet returned to. It was written to a church just like ours, a people just like us. They didn't have Jesus to come and feast and meal on the other side because it wasn't about food. 
It's about what the food represents. It's an image. So here's what it looks like for us today to sit at the table with Jesus. First, we remember we're invited. Do you know you're invited? Do you know you're invited? He's made room for you. He saved a seat for you. And second, we make room in our lives to come, to respond to this invitation, an invitation to be accepted by him, to celebrate with him, to find healing in his presence and rest in his sweet, warm friendship. The God of all creation loves you, friends. And he loves you without reserve. Remember we're invited. We come in our lives and make space to sit and enjoy his presence and watch him do remarkable, miraculous things. Friends, would you make space at the table of your life for Jesus this week? Would you make space at the table of your life for Jesus this week? Would you join with me in prayer? Almighty God, I just, I just come before you right now. I just thank you that you're loving and that your sweetness and your kindness and your gentleness towards every one of us is evident. Lord, that you didn't come to call the righteous. You weren't just looking for perfect people who could make their way to your home and your kingdom, who could prove by their own merit that they were welcome there. But you were just looking for the rest of us, people who fail and make mistakes and stuff it up and struggle and suffer every day. And it's to us, you say, hey, I've called you. Come and trust me. Come and know I love you. And Jesus, I praise you that you went ahead and you proved that not only through your words, not only through a dinner party, but with your life on a cross where you suffered and you gave away your life to welcome home, to find life for the rest of us. That when we look to Jesus, your name is like honey on our lips. Lord, when we look to you, Jesus, we see the clear, evident love of God. Or maybe in this room, you didn't know you were invited to a table. You'd never heard of a Jesus who could love you that much. You would never conceive that Jesus wasn't looking for your religion, just your presence. And I want to invite you with all eyes closed and with all heads bowed, just out of respect and really out of prayerfulness. Right? If this is you in this room and you want to respond today to an invitation that Jesus is making for you to come and sit at his table, I just want you to raise your hand in the air so that I can see. Make that decision today and say, Jesus... I want to sit there with you for the first time or I want to come back and sit with you at this table. Just raise your hand now. Come on. Let's pray together. Almighty Jesus, I just thank you for your love. You are close. And that right now, even in this room, your Holy Spirit is, is whispering kind words to people sitting here promises that they are welcome before and with you and somehow that's enough my prayer lord is this for the christian i pray my god may we actually be renewed and sparked in our soul to make a priority out of sitting with you that you are the healer and the lover you are not sitting there hitting us or or attacking us or, or trying to make us hit some sort of standard you just say come and be find rest for your souls Lord, we just praise you today as we respond, Lord. Jesus, you are a good Savior and a good friend. Help us to worship you. In Jesus, in your perfect name we pray. Amen, amen. Friends, would you stand with me?
And would you respond to this good invitation and this good God in worship? Thanks again for listening to the New Life Podcast. If that stirred something within you or you would like prayer, you can head to church.nu forward slash prayer or contact us through our Instagram or Facebook page. We pray you have a great week. Be blessed.